Aaron and I want to start with a really big, heartfelt first bite thank you. We have been so encouraged by your kind word, your messages, your glowing reviews of First Bite. This has been a labor of love for the last year and a half, and we we are grateful for y'all being on the First Bite journey with us and supporting us because we I mean, we work full time and this is this is a full time gig on top of it. And we do it with joy because we understand that the world of early intervention pediatrics needs evidence in it. So we sweet talked the folks with speechtherapypd.com. And as a thank you giveaway, we have come up with a, a, a free pod course subscription. So once we hit 130 iTunes written reviews, we're going to pull another name out of the hat, probably with the assistance of an ever so handsome goose and a bear. And that person will get a free PodCourse subscription. So over 175 hours of continuing ed plus 19 new continuing hours each month. And there's a new episode every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every other Thursday, and the short course, nine series long, all things ethics with Elise. And that's our way of giving back. So thank you. So please keep the reviews coming. We only have a few more to go, but once we hit 130, then we will pull that name out of a hat. Happy 2020. Thank you for joining us on the journey. And Seriously, y'all rock. Thank you. Hey, so by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCourse subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. 
In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields, or as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee Byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. So today's episode falls in the fun, functional, and fed categories. And can we get a collective amen for today's topic? Y'all, we are finally addressing the elephant in the room that seems to be on a rise. Well, at least on the rise in my neck of the woods. Y'all, I am talking about eosinophilic esophagitis, that tricky devil also known as EOE. So here's the deal. I had not heard of EOE when I was in grad school. Sure as anything, I didn't hear about it in my clinical fellowship year. And in truth, I didn't hear about it until about five years ago when it felt like it came out of nowhere and I had three patients that were diagnosed. Now, now I'm not so sure if these little ones are just finding me or if we are getting better at finding it. But y'all, it feels like EOE is all over. And in my concern is that Unfortunately, we still don't collectively know about it as a profession. And I'm talking about the profession of speech pathology. We just don't, we're not really that familiar with it. How many times have we heard a patient has a diagnosis, but out of professional embarrassment for not understanding what a diagnosis means, we just politely nod and move on during the case history section of our evals. Or better yet, we make a note to go back and check it out later, but then that later, y'all, later is elusive and other things pop up like soccer practice or swim lessons or the three dozen freaking cookies you forgot that you had to bake for PTA and it's due tomorrow because that's never happened to Pack Dawson. Ha, ha, ha. I'm really, really glad there's a great grocery store right down the street. Just say, Okay. So all those are excuses being made. And that's just it. It's time that we step up to the plate and take a closer examination at what EOE is, how it's diagnosed, treated, and the impact it has for our tiny humans. And I am thrilled to have back today's guest, Dr. Greg Black, the current president of the South Carolina Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Society. He was guest for episode 13, so you're telling me allergy allergy testing is important, and episode 18, dairy versus soy versus what, the correct formula for your allergy and why. So without taking a further longer ado and entrance, Dr. Greg, thank you for coming back on, friend. I appreciate you taking the time to join us, especially before the yellow plague descends on the greater Palmetto State area. Dun, dun, dun. That's a pollen joke, (laughs) y'all. So yay, Dr. Greg. (laughs) 
Thank you. Thank you for having me back. That was a wonderful introduction. Yes. Hi. It takes effort to write these things. I'm just saying you have to be creative and witty and funny. And I mean, um, you, I, and G-rated humor, which is, that struggles sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that, that can be challenging. I'm, I'm with you. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So how are you doing? Are you doing well? I, I am continuing to overcome all my challenges. Yes. So things are good. <laughs> Okay, beautiful. And and you said the yellow plague comes in like a week, week and a half, maybe. Well, it's funny that you say the yellow plague, but I call it the yellow death. Um, and <laughs> my patients get a big kick out of that. But it's it's already here. It's just here in South Carolina. We've had two to three days of rain each week for the last four weeks. And so while the pollen's getting cranked up, people can't see it collect. But if the rain calm, if the rain will calm down for a few days. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll see, check your pollen counter. It's, it's on its way. It's, it's already getting very high. Well, I, my front yard looks like a mud hole. So, I mean, I am definitely ready for the rain to let up, but like, and the walk's been flooded. We can't even get down there to like, you know, oh, yeah. Take, yeah. get the kids out of the house. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. All right. So, um, this episode y'all comes out of a place of total joy and wanting to put good in the world. Um, I managed to sweet talk Greg into coming to Skisha a year ago, actually, it was just a little over a year ago, uh, to do a presentation on, um, specifically on EOE because it, we are seeing uh, an increase in patient diagnoses and I, and I don't know, the why, I don't have the statistics on the why, but uh, it seems to be that the more complex my cases are, when we finally get beyond the uh, behavioral feeding aversion misunderstanding, because again, to quote all of the evidence, a true behavioral feeding aversion only happens in 2 to 3% of the population, and those kiddos, you definitely need psychology or psychiatry involved if not taking the complete lead on their plan of care. But once we move past that misdiagnosis and actually delve in, we're seeing it. So take us from the beginning. What is eosinophilic esophagitis? Eosinophilic esophagitis is a chronic inflammatory disease of the esophagus that's characterized by certain symptoms and a diagnose, a diagnostic biopsy of having increased eosinophils in the lining of the esophagus that ultimately results in chronic structural changes to the esophagus. Why it occurs exactly, the exact etiology of the disease is still a matter of great debate and intense research. Uh, it was originally diagnosed by a small case series in the 1990s. Um, and for a little while after that, it was nothing more than a case oddity. But in the early 2000s, uh, other research, other gastrointestinal research centers started looking at some more of their pediatric patients and said, well, there was this thing that was published in the 90s, and we've got some of these reflux patients where they are just very difficult to treat. We've treated them with ranitidine or what most people call Zantac. We've treated them with other stronger drugs like uh, Nexium and uh, Protonics, uh, which are things called proton pump inhibitors. And man, these kids... Are just the, the, 
just so you're listening, y'all, the proton pump inhibitors versus um, the H2RA blockers. One tells the um, proton pump, the acid producers, to shush. The other one neutralizes when it's on contact. So they do two different things to the acid in the stomach. Sorry. Yes, that's correct. That, that's correct. Um, but the but the issue there is is that in the early two thousands, uh, in these big research centers, they just said none of these patients are getting better. Um, what's going on? And it started to there was a, a, an epiphany that more of these patients had increased eosinophils in the lining of their esophagus. And they realized that this was more than just a rarity, more than just a zebra, more than just something that you just read about in the occasional journal. It's something that's down the street. It's something that's um, in your office. Uh, so that that is, and, and now the as far as the allergy literature goes, as far as the pediatric gastrointestinal research goes, the publications for uh, eosinophilic esophagitis research has increased by 75, 80% over the last 10 to 15 years, roughly. Um, people call it EOE for short, uh, and that might be- it's really hard to say. Well, <laughs> it, it might, it, it probably, from, from here on out, I'll probably say EOE for the concerns of time. Uh, and everybody can get that because EOE is a very rhythmic sort of neat thing to say. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so- I distinctly remember your analogy because it made me think of Mount Vesuvius. And like I've given your analogy. Well, I've given the Michelle version of your analogy on the podcast. Okay. So the way you explained it to the audience, you said you have this cell and it's supposed to be in your small intestine. And it's the eosinophilic cell and it's okay to live in your small intestine. But for some reason, it goes from the small intestine to the stomach. And that's okay. Not great, but it's okay. But then with the repeat um, uh, GERD moments, like with the acid coming up, it comes up and then it goes into the esophagus. And then, um, y'all, he had some really great slides up. So I'm just like, kind of, I'm talking with my hands. I'm talking through his analogy. Okay. So then you said that that cell takes up residence between the esophageal wall lining because the cells there are very endemitous and swollen and permeable because of the chronic acid erosion. And so it goes into, I think you called it the interstitial, interst intracellular spaces. Yep. That's the word. And um, see, this is why I teach people to swallow and not to talk, Greg. <laughs> so it goes right in there and then it proliferates because it can. And it does what it's programmed to do in the small intestines, but it just does it in the esophagus and it makes a series of concentric rings. Did I do the analogy justice? Did I totally like screw it yeah. all up? No, 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 no. Um, but what I would, uh, my one small correction is, is that eosinophils are all over the body. Uh, they can be detected in the peripheral bloodstream. So if somebody stuck a, 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 a butterfly needle uh, in your elbow or in your wrist uh, and they drew your blood, they'd be able to detect a small amount of eosinophils. And the reason is, is their original job is to fight parasites. Uh, and so- what? Oh yeah, that's a, that's a huge part of what they do. So if you had a worm infection, uh, and this of course does happen because people walk around barefoot in the south, and um, but you know, <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> yeah, but the the issue there is it's not very common now anymore. But um, but eosinophils are um, 
originally designed as we know them. Uh, they, they fight parasites. So, but they're in your bloodstream. They're also a sign of allergic disease. Um, they're very common in the small intestine and the colon. So if you were to biopsy the colon and to see 25 eosinophils per high-powered field or 40 or 50, that would be, by some estimates, that would be almost kind of low. But eosinophils are not supposed to be in the lining of the esophagus. So they can be in the stomach a little bit. So they, can, they can very much be present in the small intestines and the colon, but they're, it's abnormal to find them in the lining of the esophagus. Now, what you're saying is true. Recurrent reflux into the esophagus, reverse traffic of partially digested food materials into the esophagus, irritates the lining of the esophagus, and dilates the spaces between the cells of the esophageal lumen. And that creates a recruitment signal. And the recruitment signal in some predisposed individuals brings eosinophils to the lining of the esophagus and EOE is created created because those eosinophils are not supposed to be there. The problem is, is that when they're there, they start to do the work that they're meant to do and they release certain proteins that fibrose uh, and stiffen the esophagus. Uh, so the rings that you mentioned, that can happen. There's this other problem called linear furrowing. Yes, it looks very painful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's uh, sometimes there's this uh, these whitish plaques uh, when the GI doctors do their endoscopy and go down there. It's almost as if the child has, uh, you know, a, can- a candidal a candidal esophagitis or a fungal esophagitis, and they look at it. But once they start biopsying it, they realize that it's EOE. But yeah, but in but the eosinophils are part of the immune system. You know, your white blood cells have divisions like the military. And your uh, anti-parasitic, uh, your anti-allergy super troopers, those are, the, those are the eosinophils, but they're not supposed to be in the esophagus. So you can think of them as they're on holiday, they're in the esophagus, they're, they're in the esophagus, they're not supposed to be there, and thus the disease is created. Okay. They're on holiday. That's the wrong holiday. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Probably, probably a bad analogy, but... <laughs> just thinking that's that's like uh, a national lampoon's vacation went bad like that's weekend at bernie's level status that's a really yeah, those I'm, are old references <laughs> we're i'm looking at the zencaster we're only 13 minutes in so uh more bad jokes are to come folks sorry <laughs> between yeah christian's been really working on his dad jokes lately and um it's been kind of funny because like the boys have been picking up on it so we'll yeah stay tuned there are there are dad jokes in route okay all right so if you are not driving and you are not jogging on a treadmill then um please bust out your cell phones and pull up the images that linear furrowing that he describes it almost looks like um when you're looking down in the esophagus, it looks like somebody just kind of took a scalpel straight down one edge and just like sliced it. That's the best way to describe it if you can't look at it. Um, if you've never seen a picture of um, uh, of an esophagus that has EOE and you're looking at the circular ring structures, for lack of a better phrase, it looks like 
somebody accidentally put a scope down inside of a trachea because it looks like the cartilaginous rings of the trachea. That's kind of what it looks like. And the plaque, it does. It looks like thrush is down in the esophagus. And so those are um, those are visual red flags. Um, okay, so I, I, I know we need to go into how EOE differs from, from GERD, but I also want to know how, how do we test for this? Should I ask that question now or should I wait and first ask about the GERD? Well, unfortunately, the specific diagnosis, the gold standard for EOE is an esophageal biopsy. Um, so an invasive test. For which the patient is sedated. There's yep, that's correct. That's correct. Um, but leading back to your other question, they're often led to a GI doctor's office to get an endoscopy because they have evidence of reflux that, or they, they physically and historically, they have this symptomatic history of reflux that's just not improving. And I bring that up because in older children, and I know many of your practitioners work with younger children, but dysphagia is not terribly common for young patients with EOE. So if you've got a six-month-old or a one-year-old or a two-year-old, they don't typically have dysphagia because they typically don't have esophageal remodeling. We talked about how the eosinophils can move in start releasing cationic proteins and some other proteins called major basic protein, or we didn't mention that one yet. But the point is, is that when they are there in force and they're degranulating and releasing those proteins, it stiffens the esophagus. And of course, the esophagus is supposed to be floppy and distensible to traffic foodstuffs, um, you know, efficiently and reliably from the mouth to the stomach. Um, But the issue there is, is that once it's stiffened, then the patient starts to become symptomatic. And if they get a one particular stiff stricture, then they're going to have a food impaction. Well, dysphagia, food impactions, things of that nature is a very classic way for a 13-year-old or a 14-year-old or a 25-year-old to come to the uh, attention of a GI doctor to not only A, get dilated, but B, get biopsied. And the doctor goes, whoa, there's a lot of eosinophils in here. Geez. Um, and then 75% of the time, um, as it turns out, the GI doctor is looking at the history and they're saying, oh, and you've got allergic rhinitis. And, oh, you've got chronic eczema. And, oh, you've got some uh, seasonal asthma in the fall and the spring. And, oh, um, turns out you can't eat peanut because if you do, you'll need an epinephrine injection. So you've got life-threatening peanut allergy. So 75% of those patients will have chronic ex- uh, chronic allergic diagnoses. Now, one out of the four won't. I do think that's something important for your um, your listeners to, your listeners to know is that these uh, EOE kids will often carry with them even early on in life uh, other allergic manifestations. So a kid with eczema and rhinitis. Wait, explain rhinitis. Okay, sorry. Rhinitis is where they have chronic runny nose and congestion. If the kid's nose is just always like running like a faucet, if they're sneezing, if they're snorting and sniffling, if they're always congested, if the mom is using nasal sprays or chronically using antihistamines like 
Zyrtec or Claritin or Flonase or things of that nature. And then I bring that up because I'll have some patients who they don't have huge adenoids, they don't have huge tonsils, they don't have some sort of structural problem. And they might be, they might be 14 months old, they might be 16 months old, and I'll have them on Flonase because it's, uh, it's acceptable. It's clinically acceptable to use fluticasone spray or or nasocort spray or something of that nature after a year of age, um, because antihistamines just aren't cutting it. Um, and, and I bring that up because those EOE kids, three out of the four will have already early on in life, chronic allergic manifestations in their history. That's okay. So on our end, um, esophageal dysphagia is just, and, and folks, we, we haven't covered, we've covered that I think once or twice in the podcast, but esophageal dysphagia has just recently been kind of lumped into the world of speech pathology, not because we can treat esophageal dysphagia, but because we're getting in the in-between phase, we're getting complaints of a globus sensation. Like, I feel like something's right here. Miss Michelle, it's stuck. It's right here. And the kiddo's like fervently poking at their larynx or the teenagers will complain or you'll hear them clearing their throat a lot or you'll watch them do effortful swallows or bless his heart just like my daddy and he would do like have a bite, two or three swallows and then a liquid wash, but he's fine. Um, does not need his speech pathologist daughter to overanalyze and diagnose and then come to find out Barrett's esophagus strictures the whole nine yards, right? I just have to put that in there, Mon Rebo. I love you, Daddy. But you, you raise an excellent point, and I'm sorry to interject, but for some of these school age children, for some of these school age children that have that problem, um, you, when you ask the parent, are they the slowest eater at the table? Do they frequent? Do they frequently need water to get through? You know, like uh, I was. I was at Shrove Tuesday tonight uh, with my five-year-old. Now he wanted to play, and I wanted him to sit down and eat. Well, he inhaled <laughs> an entire pancake faster than I've ever seen him eat. So he didn't have any dysphagia because he wanted to go play. So he inhaled a pancake in record time. And he did just fine. And then and then he went on. Now, if he had EOE, God forbid, if he had EOE, he would have never been able to do that. It would take him two glasses of water to get down one pancake and he would have had to go very slow. Uh, now, of course, of course, he's five. So he would have had to have a severe early onset case of that. But certainly if you've got a third grader or a fifth or a sixth grader, you know, they can start to show those signs. Um, and then all of a sudden they have a food impaction when they're in seventh or eighth grade. And then you realize that their esophagus has been lined with eosinophils, very likely the majority of their lives. Yeah. Okay. And food impaction is where the food literally gets stuck on one of those strictures. So um, if you, if you pull up, uh, and not an Instagram video, Lord almighty, if you pull up, um, like a YouTube video of food impaction or EOE, but specifically with a modified barium swallow study, you'll be able to see the, um, the barium go down and get hung up on one of the strictures. And this is where this is where we have to know and advocate with radiologists and because you can technically bill an esophagram scan separate 
from um, the sweep of the esophagus that is supposed to be done and is written into best practice for a modified barium swallow study. Best practice, according to um, the radiology literature and according to ASH's literature, is when we can complete a swallow study. It is from the bolus presentation at the lips following it all the way down for confirmation that it actually terminates in the stomach. Uh, is that always done to the folks listening that are in the floral suite? Probably not, but it should be because a lot of times when they start gesturing and if the kid is verbal, if the kid is older, or if you, they start like, you know, turning and having really aggressive behaviors away from the bolus presentations, there's the food impaction. There was this crazy, oh my gosh, there was this research study I read a couple years ago. They took four children. Uh, that had um, autism spectrum disorders that with the most aggressive behavioral feeding aversions. And when they actually got them to participate in the swallow study, they had um, food impactions with esophageal echolasia. Like the the LES just would not open and there was all these obstructions all the way down. And I, they, you know, they, the conclusion was just that we needed to send out more you know, patients for modified bariums for, to, it's not just behavioral, but like ever since I read that article, I've always wondered, hmm, but did they have ELE? And was that the source of the strictures and whatnot? Who's Jawali's farther up? So just a thought. Okay. Uh, a right. great, a great question. Uh, that, that does speak to how you structure a study because when you do a study or a case series really well, it shows you a few things and then it always raises more questions. Yes. Yeah. See, I always have more questions and not necessarily enough answers, but that's when I run into people like you at the grocery store and I'm like, so I have this idea. <laughs> so like, yay. Okay. All right. So we get the kiddo to the GI. The GI does the scope and then they see all of the things. And then what is it on the cell count? Because I've had kiddos come back when they do the biopsies that their eosinophilic cell count is like 105 per parts. But what does that mean when you give the parts per frame? What is acceptable? What is unacceptable? What, what, explain that. Because I just kind of nod and smile and I'm like. Let, let's go back to um, our, our second question, which uh, we maybe we shouldn't get too far away from because this will be illustrative. This will be illustrative with the greater goal of your question. So let's say let's say you've got uh, a kid who um, has a lot of um, irritability after eating. That the mom feels like there's abdominal pain, and they frequently have uh, cough vomiting uh, after feeding. And let's say that when the GI doctor does the endoscopy, they see erosive changes, they see esophageal erythema, so redness basically, there's a hiatal hernia, and the the eosinophils are 15 cells per high-powered field. Um, Well, a lot of GI doctors might say that that's just garden variety reflux, not only because of the hyal hernia, but also because of the erosive changes, because usually with EOE, you don't see a lot of erosions. You can see the whitish plaques, you can see the rings like you were talking about, you can see the furrowing. Uh, And here's the other thing about that. Here's the other thing about EOE, which is very, um, 
galling and frustrating in the in the pediatric population. One third, one third of patients will have a an outright normal appearing esophagus, which is why biopsy is so important. Um, so, the 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 dead sorry sorry the threshold the threshold for diagnosis is 15 cells per high powered field or more. And here's one thing that's also really important. The sensitivity is increased if you take at least five biopsies. So the general going is such that they should take some proximal biopsies, some distal biopsies, and some mid-esophageal biopsies. Okay, so proximal is translate proximal distal. So dis, distal would be close to the stomach. Okay. Uh, pro, proximal would be in the hypopharyngeal area. So you're just okay. you're just getting down into the esophagus, and you're just an inch into the esophagus or less, and you're you know and you're taking biopsies. Then there's the mid esophagus. Then there's the distal esophagus, which is close to the esophageal junction with the stomach. Um, but the the issue there is. Um, is that if you take at least five biopsies and you spread them out over the length of the esophagus, your sensitivity for the diagnosis will increase significantly, which is what you should do. Uh, now, so for instance, if I, what you were saying, if there are no erosive changes, there's no hiatal hernia, um, the child has been on multiple formulas and nothing is working because they're having chronic uh, vomiting, uh, chronic abdominal pain, chronic signs of reflux that aren't improving with medication. Um, because many patients will be on some form of reflux treatment before they even get to you. Uh, I'm sure you've seen that. And so so the issue there is, is that if they get put on some form of reflux treatment, whether it's an H2 blocker or whether it's a proton pump inhibitor, and if the parents go, well, God, it was just so horrible in January, but now that it's February and we're on famotidine, or now that it's February and we're on omeprazole, or usually with children, it's lansoprazole, uh, they go, oh, well, we're just so much, God, these last two weeks have just been so much better. I really can see some clear progress. Okay, with that, with that, you almost always know that it's garden variety gastroesophageal reflux disease. If they're getting put on medication and it's not helping that much or not helping at all, and they have other allergic manifestations, um, and then you do the biopsy and it's well over 15, then, you know, in those instances, very likely the child has an EOE diagnosis. So 105 cells per micro, uh, 100, 105 cells per high powered field. That. That, if they have a good history for EOE and if they have other allergic manifestations, very likely that child has a true blue EOE diagnosis. So, the, but the, the threshold, when, what is the numbers that you're looking for? The threshold is 15 cells per high-powered field. Now, um, it wasn't very long ago, and this shows you how things change, but it wasn't very long ago. Um, this was 10 years ago. The threshold was 20 cells per high-powered field. Well, you, you run into a lot of borderline cases. And so when you lower the threshold, even by five cells, um, you increase the sensitive, uh, the sensitivity of that biopsy procedure. You do. And, 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 you know, it used to be that they only took a couple of biopsies. So in the early 2000s, 
Um, it was 20 cells per high-powered field, and they would only take a couple of biopsies. Well, the diagnostic efficacy of two biopsies in that instance with that threshold was something like 50 or 55%. But if you take five biopsies and you lower it to 15 cells per high-powered field, uh, the sensitivity and specificity of the test rises to 95%. Wow. Wow. Right. So, so if they take five biopsies now, sometimes, you know, if you can read the operative before, they'll, they'll sit there and tell you, you know, how, how yeah. many biopsies they took, but if they've got something in the mid esophagus or the upper esophagus and it's well over 15 cells per high powered field. So if it's something like 30 or 40 or certainly even higher than that, then you can go, well, okay, this is EOE until proven otherwise. Yeah. The, the kiddo that had 105 it was, he was head to toe eczema, pale, sickly. I mean, it was, he was a sick kid. That sounds like one of my patients. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, continue squirrel. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, that's, yeah. The, the one thing, and this is, this is, um, you know, deep, deep cuts here. This is, uh, this, this is, uh, something that's a very, tricky topic to discuss with people is that uh, there's there's garden variety reflux patients and they get better with proton pump inhibitors and that's good um many of them are going to go on to adjust their diet many of them are going to go on to get off drugs many of them do not have allergic problems many of them are going to go on to just just be fine ultimately um that's and, and the gi doctors know it um what is odd is that there are some EOE patients that can purely and absolutely be treated by proton pump inhibitors. So they call it a subtype of EOE because they don't have to endure all the other rigorous treatments, medicines, dietary adjustments that the other EOE kids do. Uh, I mean, they may ultimately go on to avoid milk because most children with EOE do avoid milk. But there is a subset, as many as 30% of all known diagnoses that are treated with proton pump inhibitors alone. They get on Lansoprazole and their EOE, their, their EOs just vanish from the lining of their esophagus, which is great. Okay. Well, that's, that's an ongoing area of research. That's that we, we, and we think it has to do with the, their, they actually have a, it's, it's a research based thing but they have this thing called the EDP and it stands, it it stands for the eosinophilic diagnostic panel. And what they do is they look at genes that are involved in eosinophilic uh, expression in the esophagus. And they see in these individuals, there's some patients that have very weak expression of these abnormal genes and they just don't seem to have as severe as an expression of EOE that, that, that some of these other individuals do. So they get on a little bit of lansoprazole and then their ride is rain, which is great for those patients. Uh, but 70% of the EOE patients will not have that. Roughly 30 to 40%, depending on what study you look at, will improve greatly with lansoprazole, which is great for them because they don't have to endure as much misery as the other patients. Hmm. Oh, I want to see where the science goes. I, I, okay, so just thinking aloud, I'm wondering if those kiddos have any other, um, any other things going on because some of my kiddos that have had 
uh, language delays concomitant with EOE, or they've had um, gross motor, fine motor delays, or they've had a uh, diagnosis of autism spectrum disorders. Like historically, and I've, I mean, I am a very small subject sample of like, you know, just the patients that I've seen. Those children tend to need a lot more work, right? Yeah, well, yeah. Um, I, the, the problem that we have here, and this might be a great segue into our, our, our next question, but the problem that we have here is that there is no FDA-approved treatment for EOE. Um, and uh, an immunologist who um, used to work at Johns Hopkins says that you know, this is, this is a paraphrasing of one of his, um, one of his many statements, but, you know, learning about a disease and figuring out how to treat it teaches you so much about that one organ system, you know, learning how to treat hepatitis teaches you way more about the liver than you ever knew. Um, for, you know, learning how to treat immune deficiency teaches you more about how the immune system is actually supposed to work. Because when there's this one brick in the wall that's missing, then you sit there and go, oh, God, there's a big hole here. And then you realize that one particular brick, why is that brick so important uh, for that particular point in the wall? And so I think what we're I think probably what we're going to end up finding is that there are genes and there's functions and there's um, there's things about the esophagus that are probably way more important than we ever imagined because we're going to have to figure out how to treat EOE successfully in the future. And it's going to come with some revelations very likely. This is fascinating. Oh my gosh. Okay. All right. So then I just have one other question. I have run into a pediatrician that likes to just diagnose or rule out EOE um, by blood samples alone without referring to GI or to an allergist? No, 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 okay. no. Um, there, again there is, the in the back. <laughs> well, I, 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 I hear that. I, I, I get that. Um, yeah. Here's, here's, and here's the thing. And I, and I wish that I had more of a role to play in this, but skin testing plays only a limited role in the management of EOE because skin testing itself has no role in the diagnosis of EOE. Um, and, and what I mean by this is that the only thing that can diagnose EOE is combining a history that's very typical with a positive biopsy. And even then, during that time period, you should ask yourself if the values on biopsy are borderline. And if the symptoms are very typical of reflux, and if the patient is not an allergic individual at large, they don't have eczema, they've never wheezed with a virus, they don't have chronic runny nose and congestion, they don't come from an allergic family, okay, good. Um, but to simply send off a blood test for food allergies um, doesn't rule out anything. It doesn't. Um, and I, and it, it, that's just... And unfortunately, the other thing about that is that we've had four sets of guidelines come and go since we've really started looking at this more aggressively in 2006. And never at any time has the research ever endorsed blood testing as a diagnostic 
pathway to EOE. It should not be done. It, it, it's an unnecessary blood draw. It creates confusion and anxiety for the families um, and it, it misdirects them. It's unfortunate. It does happen. It's wrong. Thank you. Thank you. Just wanted to clarify that because I'm like, that's not actually how it's done. We should probably send off to GI for for an, an actual eval. But, you know, sometimes being the lonely SLP in the room and you're just advocating, advocating, you just keep on with your tiny hammer chiseling away and hope it gets somewhere. So, yeah, I appreciate that. Okay, so then. Tell them I said so. Yeah, I will. I, I will say. So I know this podcast you should listen to because I have actually done that when I'm trying to convince somebody. I'm like, don't listen to me. Hear it from the subject matter expert. And then you'd be surprised it can sometimes open doors. And that brings my heart a lot of joy. So go team. Okay, but we get the diagnosis of EOE. And um, then the families are landed. Uh, so here's your diagnosis. The next, like the next question, the next step that I get like inevitably at the very next therapy session is, okay, so what can he eat? Like, what can we work on? And I'm like, well, that's where it gets tricksy and we have to work as a team. What guidelines did your GI and registered dietitian and your allergist give to you? Because that's hard. I'm expected to help a child learn how to eat, but we don't know what they can eat. So what happens after? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, um, that is such a good question. Uh, I am also so happy that you, and that you mentioned a dietitian. Um, and let me just, let me just say that before I, before I get started on my, on my next rant that, um, that dietitians, dietitians are missing from a lot of these workups. And part of it is, is that, um, I think there's only so many dietitians to go around that have enough. Um, I, I don't want to say wherewithal. They're, they're, yeah, 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 exactly. That has that have the research or the experience or the willingness to take these patients and blah, blah. Um, and even in a place like Columbia, sometimes where I'm saying, well, you really need to be referred to a dietitian. And I might say that to a patient two or three times and include it in my dictations and call the primary care doctor about it. And then the next year I sit there and look at the patient and go, do you ever go to a dietitian? And and invariably they say no. Um, And so it's just, it's just one of those things where um, there's only so many of them to go around and, and I don't want to get too deep in the weeds there, but the, the first thing that usually happens is that they need to avoid milk. Now here's the very interesting thing about milk, whether we prick them with milk and whether it's positive or whether it's negative, overwhelmingly, Milk protein is the number one trigger of eosinophilic inflammation in the esophagus. So if you're a poor man's pediatrician, if you're a poor man's family doctor, if you're out in the middle of nowhere, Utah, Nebraska, Wisconsin, wherever, and you're hours and hours. Pillion accounts. Yeah. yeah. Okay, fine. Yeah. But you're, you're hours and hours and hours away from any sort of uh, GI endoscopy center and, or, or something like that. And, and, but you've recently gotten diagnosed with this by, you've gotten back from some big research center and nobody can give you anything. The first thing, the first thing that you can say is that they should avoid milk and dairy. And while they may not be a whole lot that while they may not be completely cured of there, there is no cure for EOE, but while they may not, while their symptoms may not completely resolve, you will notice 
a substantial improvement just by avoiding milk alone, milk and dairy, milk dairy in all forms. My okay, that's my next question because I, one of my kiddos, and I've had a couple that have had the EOE count above a hundred because this is just the world that I live in. Um, one of them, the mom said to me, well, he doesn't drink his milk anymore. We gave him sweet tea. <laughs> Can't make this up. And we, um, yeah, so the sweet tea through a sippy cup, which is a conversation for a whole different episode. And then um, she proceeds to show me the bars that he's eating. And the bars are um, wheat-based and have dairy in them. Milk is listed as one of the ingredients. And I'm like, honey, this still has this still has milk in it. She goes, Yeah, but they cook that out. And and I expressed concern that they should follow the um recommendations for the other like fig-based bars that were recommended by the registered dietitian that did not have dairy in as the ingredients. But what about the bakeout process? Is that a legitimate statement? No, no. Um, and, and this this is where things get uh, very complicated. So forget EOE for a second. If you've got a child who is uh, severely allergic to milk or severely allergic to egg, the vast majority of those discrete populations, they're egg allergic or they're milk allergic. The vast majority of those individuals will tolerate baked milk. They will tolerate baked egg. So they can have a muffin with baked milk. They can have a cookie or an Eggo waffle that has baked egg in it. And that's fine. They're not going to have anaphylaxis. They're not going to have an acute allergic reaction that's going to require epinephrine and an immediate um, trip to the ER. Right, yeah. An epinephrine. That's correct. Or uh, something else that we use nowadays, which is called an AVQ, and it's an electronic epinephrine injector. You take it out of the sheath, it talks to you. It's great. Great for grandparents. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's awesome. Um, anyway, um, not that there, that's Dr. Black squirrel. There you go. Um, so. <laughs> I love it. um, but, but the point about that is that it's true to prevent anaphylaxis in those individuals. They know that they can have baked milk. They know they can have baked egg. They just can't have salad dressing that has raw egg. They can't eat raw cookie dough that has raw egg in it. That's fine. They, that will anaphylax them. It's different with EOE. Um, the, the thing about EOE, which is so weird, is that it's not, an, it's not a disease process that's distinctly rooted in the production of an allergic antibody. The reason why we know that is that you can give, um, first of all, um, children, you can't, children with EOE, if I skin test them, and let's say I skin test them with milk, egg, soy, wheat, peanut, tree nuts, fish, shellfish, sesame. What is this? The big eight? Is that what it's called? The big eight or the big nine? Yeah. Well, it's, it, we're, we're adding on sesame now and now more days because sesame is starting to become a major food allergen. It's really starting to become a thorn in our side. Yeah, it's really starting to become a thorn in our side. And it's, uh, and, and more frustratingly, we, the natural history is, is somewhat suggestive that it may be chronic. So while milk, egg, soy, wheat, the vast majority of individuals outgrow those, we don't need any more chronic food allergies. So we don't want sesame to be one of those things, but um, the research is ongoing there. But we're adding on sesame just because it's becoming such a problem. And so, but so the issue with that 
is that I can skin test them to all those things. And if they're positive to egg, soy, and wheat, we're still going to avoid milk because even if the milk skin test is negative, milk avoidance is so helpful for roughly two thirds of EOE patients. So if they're positive to egg, soy, and wheat, guess what? You're going to avoid milk, egg, soy, and wheat. And even then, that even then there's a significant percentage of patients that won't improve. And the, the suggestion there is that where we'll look, what are we doing when we're skin testing patients? We're looking for evidence of allergic antibodies. We're looking for evidence of sensitization. So if we customize their diet using skin testing, they should be just fine, right? Well, the answer is no. Usually somewhere between 25 to 40% of patients, depending on what study you read, they won't get better. And, and, and so the question there is, is that, well, if they're not getting better, then there must be something more than the allergic antibody response that's driving this. Uh, knowing that a researcher took a bunch of rats and gave them EOE. Um, this is sort of a karma note here. If you're, if you're bad in life and come back as a rat in an allergy lab, but, um, but, um, they gave all these rats EOE. Uh, they gave all these rats EOE, and then they gave them a special therapy called uh, omalizumab. So what omalizumab does is that it soaks up all the allergic antibodies. So they gave all these rats EOE, and then they gave another medicine which soaks up all the allergic antibodies. And then they said, okay, now that these rats have been on this special therapy that soaks up all the allergic antibodies and, and like totally locks it out, makes it ineffective, let's still see if they have EOE. And most of them did. So the issue there in these basic animal studies is that if they've got EOE, even after you soak up all the allergic antibodies, how, why is skin testing um, worthwhile? Uh, and I bring that up because the most recent research which suggests that skin testing is very helpful for these individuals, well, I say very, it's, it's, it's pretty helpful for them if it's negative. If it's positive, you definitely, you, you, it's harder to know in young children, especially, especially for your, for your population in young children, we call it the S fed. The S fed is the six food elimination diet, but, but they, combine, they combine a couple of the categories at the end, but milk, egg, soy, wheat, that's the first four peanuts and tree nuts. That's the fifth, um, fish and shellfish. That's the sixth. So they call it the S fed for six food elimination diet. Um, and, and those individuals who are put on the SFED uh, improve 70 to 75%, depending on what study you read, uh, but they, they improve significantly. Although recently, recently in some children, um, a, a forefed a milk, egg, soy, wheat had similar, um, had similar rates of improvement. Uh, culturally, that might be because in the United States, um, we're not jamming fish and shrimp, you know, into their diet under two years of age, um, like you might see in some Asiatic countries. But, but the issue there, but the issue there is, is that uh, a four food elimination diet or an, or a six food elimination diet is consistently more efficient at controlling their symptoms than um, using skin testing to uh, to customize their diet to, to see what they can eat here and there. Even then, think about what we just talked about. Um, they could still eat lean meats. They could still have turkey, they could still have rice. 
they can still have fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, they could, they could, um, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, cause a lot of times people are trying to use almond milk or soy milk or all these other things. And if you're going on the S-Fed, you can't do that. Um, but they can still have some of those other lean proteins and fresh fruits and vegetables. Okay. So then here's the catch folks that are listening. It is not in our scope of practice to be able to give recommendations on the foods. That's not what we do. We can give recommendations on the viscosity. We can give recommendations on um, how to food chain according to color, shape, temperature, texture, size, those kind of things. But it's the registered dietitian that say you have a kid who is newly diagnosed with EOE that's only accepting like four foods and then um, we just find out that they are going um, – you know, we're going to eliminate um, gluten from the diet. We're going to eliminate dairy from the diet. We're taking eggs out. And the only thing that they want to eat is their preferred bar every meal. Well, yeah. And, and, and going in, and, and I apologize for interrupting, but um, when, when we're recommending basically an elemental diet, uh, especially for a child like under a year of age, uh, and the only thing that we can recommend from a liquid standpoint would be something like Neocade or Pure Amino or one of those elemental formulas, which is which is not only incredibly expensive and a, just a, a pain in the tuchus to to get approved by uh, insurance. Oh yeah, well it's it's not very yeah exactly it's not very palatable. But then the other thing too is is that you're putting them on this elemental formula, and as they're growing up obviously your goal is to introduce them to some sort of nutritious diet that they can eat so that they can grow and they can thrive because their their nutrition is often directly linked with their cognition and their quality of life and their development i mean all, all these things are so central to their well-being um so if you're sitting there with you know your your speech pathologist your your swallowing therapist your your allergist and the gi doctor and the dietitian is is not in in the one of the links in the chain then the family is missing out on something incredibly important, which is why at, at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, uh, at, I, I think at Levine's Children, Levine Children's in Charlotte, they have an EOE center. You see the, you see the allergy doctor, and right after you see the allergy doctor, um, you see the dietitian for 15 or 20 minutes, and then, then, then you're off. But it's, it's part of the visit. That's why it's so important. Yes. Okay. So, okay, what he's describing is an EOE clinic. Just like we're, a lot of us are familiar with like craniofacial clinic, VPI clinic, cleft palate clinic, um, a feeding clinic, right? There are specific clinics at our major, um, Nationwide, I think, has one. Um, Cincy Children's has one. Um, Cincy actually has a really, really good one. Um, uh, and um, But it's an EOE clinic. And that gatekeeper to the next high-calorie food that's like caloric, um, uh, metabolic rich, the gatekeeper to that is the registered dietitian. Um, and, and that's, that's hard. Um, this is where I'm going to take two seconds to do a plug y'all feeding matters, um, dot org. It's a, um, it's a nonprofit. I am a huge proponent of, um, I, y'all have heard me plug them. You've heard me do their commercials. They actually have a scholarship set up so that our families that like, you know, Dr. Greg said, if you're living someplace really rural where they don't have a holistic team for the diagnosis, um, 
that you can apply for this scholarship and they will help get the families and the little ones to, they cover the expenses, um, they could cover the hotel rooms, they could cover the scholarship could go towards the out-of-pocket, towards the deductible. Um, and they took, they helped one of my dear friends um, who I know is listening, hello, Mama Bear, um, from Alabama, get there and go from Alabama to go to a major children's hospital to get the diagnosis of EOE, to get the proper treatment. And like Munchkin is eating chicken. And I think that's amazing. But that's what those nonprofits are for. And please know they pay me nothing. I just absolutely am in awe of when good things happen to good people. And this is a good association. So, okay. So we get the RD in the door. We consult with them. They tell us what foods um, they would recommend. And then I like to go back, especially for my EOE kiddos, and verify with the allergist. Um, because I've had a lot of kiddos that have been allergic to pea protein. Why is that? Why does pea protein pop up? Uh, it's so funny that you mentioned that because that's one of those evolving food allergens. And, and that's, that's also the pitfalls of having them avoid all these foods. So what happens is that they get biopsied. They have uh, increased eosinophils on the biopsy. It's like 35 or 60 or whatever it is. Um, we get referred uh, they get referred to us, I should say, and they've got a positive skin test, uh, egg, peanut, uh, cashew, shrimp, something like that. And as far as the SFED, we have them avoid it. Um, but we also, at that point, give them an EpiPen or give them an OBQ because the goal is for them to ser- serially and sequentially get biopsied. Uh, after they int- start introducing new foods. Well, the, the risk is established that they could, in some of these situations where they have a positive skin test to shrimp or they have a positive skin test to cashew, even though they might be 14 months old and they've never eaten cashew, they've become sensitized. So the risk is that they would anaphylax two years later once they start introducing tree nuts. So we have to give them those things. Now, I bring that up because milk, egg, soy, wheat, peanut, tree nut, fish and shellfish and sesame, that makes up roughly 90 to 95% of all food-induced anaphylaxis. But oddly enough, um, peach, carrot, pea protein, like you were mentioning, green pea, things of that nature, uh, I'm seeing more and more of those, and and those are starting to make some noise um, in the food-induced anaphylaxis literature um, where we're seeing more more of that. Uh, so if it's, if, if it's fruit, Fruit and vegetables, I start to worry about peach, I start to worry about carrot, and I start to worry about pea, which is, it's crazy, but I'm seeing more and more of it. Okay, so it's not just meat. Now, what about peach? Isn't peach a latex red flag? Because isn't avocado in the latex allergy? It can be. Uh, it. I, I hear what you're saying there. It can be, but the issue there is, is that the allergens inside the peach are so homologous and so structurally similar similar with certain pollen proteins. So if you look at your high-risk um, cross-reactive latex fruits, it's usually more um, banana, uh, avocado, uh, watercress, uh, chestnut, and, and peach is in there. Um, it's just not quite as prevalent as some of those others I just mentioned. So some people can be purely peach allergic. They usually have a lot of pollen allergy. And many of those individuals will not be latex allergic. And, and honestly, outside of your spina bifida population, you know, when my children are old and gray and, and, and so are yours, 
uh, there may not be such a thing as latex allergy. Um, you know, so, so we're kind of in the, it's, it's, it's not, it's not, I can't predict it a hundred percent, but we're seeing less of that than we used to. Okay. Interesting. Just, I, I have a little one that, um, I cannot go to his home if I have eaten avocado or eggs because he is so, and his, his allergies are so bad that they have to homeschool him. Like if he touches, like if somebody were to erase something with a pencil and he were to accidentally come in contact with one of the, um, the little like droppings that come off of a pencil when you use the eraser, he breaks out and massive whelps. They have to do Benadryl and be prepped and ready with an EpiPen. So like, I don't even go if I've had avocado egg toast, like I have avocado egg toast on a different day. I have, so. I have, I have food allergy patients that are on homebounds uh, for their education. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just those are thoughts. Okay. So, oh my gosh, I could pick your brain all, all night, but we, okay. Time. Okay. What have we not covered that you want to say about EOE? You have an audience of speech pathologists, an audience of mommies, um, advocates, daddies, caregivers, what do you want us to know in like a minute and a half? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Um, your first thing to do is to avoid milk and dairy. And then your second thing to do is to reach out to your GI doctor in the aftermath of the biopsy and, and, and to really press them for what's next besides the next biopsy. Um, besides GI doctors, there's probably nobody else that knows more about this than the allergy community. So most pediatricians, most family doctors, most GI doctors want you to see the allergists. There are new therapies that are in the works. Um, it's beyond the scope of this discussion but we're keeping our eye on two or three of them that are very promising, but they're not FDA approved yet and the research continues. So getting skin tested for some individuals does allow them to craft a diet that's okay for them. But the other thing about that is that we help you manage the risk factors. And since three quarters of these individuals often do have some other allergic manifestation, food-induced anaphylaxis, eczema, asthma, things of that nature. Uh, for three-quarters of your EOE patients, you have a home with us anyway. So it's very important to see us. I also think not forgetting about the dietitian to help the patient's nutrition thrive in the, in the enormous undertaking for what it is to avoid those six common foods. For children, Elemental formulas and food elimination diets still at this moment are the best therapies. The problem and the challenges that you face going forward is when they become older and when they're teenagers and when they're adults, the diet is unpalatable and often people will derivate from the diet and when they do, they will start to have symptoms. The problem that you have thereafter is that the more they derivate and the more they're non-compliant with their diet, the more symptoms they'll have and the more symptoms they'll have, the more that it will fibrose and affect the structural nature of their esophagus, which will lead to problems. Uh, narrowing of the esophageal lumen, um, strictures, food impaction, need for recurrent 
esophageal dilation, which although very safe in the trained hands of a GI doctor who knows what they're doing with endoscopy, that does also open you up to the risk of esophageal perforation with recurrent dilations. So sticking to a therapy that works, that is counseled by your GI doctor and by your allergist with the support of the dietitian, is key to not only maintaining your quality of life, but avoiding those potential complications. If, you, if, if somebody accidentally rips a hole in your esophagus, they have to call the thoracic surgeon. They have to so they can sew it up. That doesn't really happen that often in children, but here's the problem. We have very little evidence that any child outgrows EOE. Now, they might get to a point where they're avoiding milk and egg, and those are their only EOE triggers because we've been able to successfully reintroduce soy. We've been able to reintroduce wheat and fish and, and, and shrimp and sesame and all those things. Great, great, good. We love that. But the issue there is, is that they become adolescents, and adolescents engage in risk-taking behavior. I have no idea what you're talking about. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, you know, the other thing, too, is, is that they get bullied, and when they get bullied, they want to assert themselves, and then they engage in risk-taking behavior to, you know, to show everybody how cool they are and how, how it's not a big deal and they don't want to talk about it anymore. Um, and, you know, and so the issue – and the other the, the problems with that is, is that some of those risk-taking behaviors – you know, they grew up this way. They're tired of living this way. They, they like stuff that has dairy in it. They like chocolate. Who doesn't, who doesn't like chocolate? Those sort of things. And the problem with that is that when you derivate from the diet, if that starts destroying your esophagus because it's fibrosing it, it's, it's creating strictures, well, then you start subjecting yourself to unnecessary preventable medical procedures that do entail complications. So the more times they have to have their esophagus dilated, the more they are at risk for an esophageal perforation. And esophageal perforations are not good. They fill up your chest with air. Um, they cause they're they're incredibly painful, and usually they require surgery to repair. I I um, y'all advocate when you got a picky eater, and you are seeing all the red flags and a past medical history of acid reflux, and especially when I see eczema or the mom said, oh yeah, they had a milk protein allergy when they were little and, and we just switched over to this or I just took dairy out of my diet when I was breastfeeding. Y'all, those are the breadcrumbs that are being laid out. So if please, they, please, please, yeah, please add If, if they come to you, if they come to you with those sort of symptoms and they already have an EpiPen because they anaphylaxed a peanut, that, that's an additional... That's an additional breadcrumb right there that you might have an EOE patient. Yes. So please, we, it is in our scope of practice to advocate and request for additional referrals. So pick up the phone, call the pediatrician, call the referral source nurse practitioner, whomever it may be, get the kid to a GI, get the kid to an allergist. So, okay. Um, I do, before we switch over to questions, I just have to give a, um, a moment, um, uh, a, very dear instrumental woman um, is um, was actually displaced with hospice for esophageal cancer, and Miss Molly was um, my Goose Danger Dawson's uh, 4K teacher, and she was the light of his life, and she helped my son find his muchness. And um, Miss Molly, wherever you are, um, and Lord knows I know where you are. Um, bless you. Thank you for all of your work. Um, 
I don't have a way of paying it forward other than spreading word on um, what to do about an esophagus and the tiny humans. So um, thank you. All right, Greg, hang on. I'm switching this over to questions. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.